All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We start today with the handgun freeze announced on Monday by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. This announcement took a lot of people by surprise. The freeze will ban the sale, transfer, and importation of handguns in Canada. And Trudeau said he wants to cap the market for handguns. That is sure not happening, at least in the short term. This handgun freeze has to go through the House of Commons first. Meanwhile, gun stores across Canada now reporting a surge in handgun sales as people rush to beat the freeze before it kicks in. There are approximately 2,500 stores in Canada that sell handguns, and many of them right now reporting a rush in handgun sales. I've got Scott Carpenter standing by, owner of International Shooting Supplies in Surrey. But have a listen to this here first. This is on yesterday's show. Listen to this caller on the open line and what he did when he heard about this freeze. Have a listen. I damn sure as well jumped on the train and bought two handguns last night online. You bought two handguns last night? Uh, Yep. Obviously, I'm going to because it's free means I can never have one in my life if I don't get one now. Yeah, but no. I'm a law I'm a law abiding citizen and this freeze only affects me and law abiding citizens. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest Scott Carpenter. Scott is the owner of International Shooting Supplies in Surrey and I'm very pleased you could make the time for us this morning. Scott, thank you for coming on. Hey, good morning. How are you? I'm doing good, Scott. Thanks for doing this. What's happening at your business there? Are you getting a lot of uh, customers want to buy handguns right now? Yeah, you could say that. It's been a little overwhelming. <laughs> really? So, yeah. Tell, what, what's it been like? Tell, tell me what it's been like. What, what's it been like? Yeah. Uh, let, me give you an, let me give you an analogy here that, that the general public can understand. Sure. Imagine you own a nice little speedboat and you're out ripping around the ocean with four of your best buddies. And off in the distance, you see the, the water start to swell and you go, huh, look at that. The ocean's coming up. And then about five minutes later, you're, you're faced with a massive tidal wave and you can't outrun it. And about the only thing you can do is turn into the wave and, and try and crest it and hope that uh, there's not another one behind it on the other side. And right now we're, we're trying to crest. So I, if my customers are listening, I, I just want to apologize to the 70-some people who've left messages on my machine that I can't return right now and uh, let you know that we're, we're at the top of the wave right now and we don't know what's on the other side yet, so... We're going to do our best. I know some of my competitors have actually closed their doors to the public just to try and catch up with the surge of, of orders and foot traffic from yesterday. So, you know, we're just we're doing our best. And uh, if you're a gun owner out there right now, we just want you to know that we do care about your business, but there's only so much we can do at once. How, how much have your sales gone up, would you estimate? Sales gone up? Yeah. <laughs> wow. I, I, I can't even do that math right now. Yeah, like we we did. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't really like to share my personal finance financial information with with the entire world. But I yeah. bet you we did month sales in a day yesterday. You did a, a month worth of worth of sales. Did you say? Yeah. In in one day. In one day. Wow. What are people saying to you when they call you? Well, well they're just give me my stuff. Yeah. You know, like people have been actually pretty patient, don't get me wrong, or they understand that we're under a lot of pressure right now, and it's, it's a time-sensitive situation. Um, so my, my customers and my, my, my client base has basically been pretty understanding and really decent with us. 
Um, so I'm not going to complain about that, but it's, it's just the sheer volume. It's overwhelming. Speaking of Scott Carpenter, he's the owner of International Shooting Supplies in Surrey. In order to buy a handgun at your store, Scott, you already have to have a, a possession and acquisition license for a restricted firearm, right? It's not like anyone can just walk in off the street right now and say, oh man, I better buy a handgun. You have to have a license to purchase it first. This is, this is a freaking complex purchase. It's not like, oh, I take your money and have a nice day. I mean, holy moly. I mean, the, the amount of administrative work that this has put on my staff and I are is almost unbelievable but you know you you have to have your pal you have to be a member of a gun club um you know you're going to have your background checked and then there's a registration process for the handguns it has to go from my company's uh inventory into into the customer's inventory and that takes a few days and and right now to do a transfer online i mean it's the system is so overwhelmed right now um to where we input all of our customers information their pal number their birth dates their addresses um, the clubs they belong to, all that information has to go into the government system. And it's so overwhelmed right now, it's, it's 10 to 15 minutes just to do a single transfer. So we're, we're trying to phone them in and do them in batches. And, and, the, and, the, and the poor people on the other end of the line, God bless them, they're, they're such nice people and they're so patient, but I'm, I know they're getting overwhelmed too. I mean, yeah. it, it's just created a, a cluster bomb. What do you think about what Justin Trudeau was doing here? He said that this move is in response to gun rising gun violence in Canada. That's why he is bringing in this handgun freeze. What do you think of that? Well, it's it's more it's political. This isn't about gun violence in Canada. I mean, if if you talk to just about any police officer, they'll tell you that that uh, you know registered handguns uh, from licensed owners are not responsible for the problems we have. The vast, vast majority, like 99% of guns that are in the hands of the gangs, which is where most of our gun violence comes from, are, are yeah. illegally obtained in the U.S. and smuggled across the border. You know, I, I read a, a statement from a Montreal um, police officer yesterday that said he could count on one hand in his career how many guns he'd retrie- handguns he'd retrieved that had belonged to licensed owners. He says it's not significant. You know, the, the, it's a, it's a, it, this isn't an issue of public safety. It really isn't. And, and people are all have their own theories behind it but i mean if you look at what's happening you know in the country in a, in a broader sense it's just this is more of an it's virtue signaling to get votes from his base combined with another way to punish his political opponents because trudeau assumes that most gun owners vote conservative and i'm, I'm sure the majority of them do but i can tell you that having a business in surrey um that's that's not entirely true. I have a wide variety of clients, and they vote a lot of different ways, and none of them are happy with this. You know, like the gun the gun issue is just one issue in a sea of many, and and so he's not just upsetting, you know, conservative voters. He's upsetting some of his own base. He may not realize it, but in a, in an urban environment like this, he certainly is. So I I don't know what the end game is All for right. these guys. It's it's a little bit nutty from my perspective, but here Trudeau. we are. Trudeau was asked yesterday if this is fair to law-abiding Canadians who own firearms. Uh, is he targeting owners who are gun owners who are, are not breaking the law, not a threat to commit acts of violence? And here, here's what he had to say, Scott, and I'll get your thoughts. So this is Trudeau speaking yesterday. We've explicitly and specifically not targeted law-abiding firearms owners because uh, those who currently own and uh, operate handguns safely and store them safely are not 
at all targeted by this legislation. We're simply saying uh, that we are uh, freezing the market and in the future it'll not be possible to buy, sell, transfer or import handguns in Canada. Okay, so he says he's not going after law-abiding gun owners. I guess, I guess his point is he's not taking away your guns if you have them now, a handgun. But are you buying what he's selling there, like his point there? No. I mean, any, anyone with, you know, a functioning IQ doesn't buy that. I mean, it's the only, the only people this actually affects is law-abiding gun owners. And at this point, yeah, maybe you're not taking the inventory away from people, but it leaves it open for confiscation a little later. But, you know, what you're, what you're doing is, you know, it, any, any culture relies on um, the ability of, of new people to join in and, and become a part of it, right? Right, and yeah. You're, you're basically what you're doing is is grandfathering the entire culture completely out of existence. So you 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 are attacking the law abiding because the the only people that will ab- abide by this regulation are people who obey the law to begin with. I mean, uh, you know, gangsters and, and criminals don't really care what Justin Trudeau has to say. They're just going to do whatever they want to do anytime, anyway. Scott, I know you're very busy at your store. Thank you for taking the time today. I appreciate it. Oh, you're most welcome. All right, welcome back. Here we go now with gas-powered leaf blowers. Should they be banned everywhere in BC? They're noisy, they're smelly, they pollute the air. A lot of people don't like them. Uh, but look what Oak Bay is doing in Victoria. They are banning not just gas-powered leaf blowers, but gas-powered lawnmowers and weed whackers and chainsaws too. Yeah, those are all on the chopping block in Oak Bay. Other municipalities have done the same thing in Canada and around North America, too. I've got Oak Bay City Councilor Tara Ney standing by to discuss. First, have a listen to this report here from ABC News about communities in the United States that are banning leaf blowers. Have a listen to this. On a beautiful November day, this is the sound of the suburbs. And communities are raking in complaints. They do drive you crazy. You don't want to sit outside. Every kind of pollution. The ever-present snarl of leaf blowers creating a chorus of calls to stop polluting the moment and the air. The pandemic brought, uh, raised the, the uh, volume of those com- complaints dramatically as people were working from home. The town of Huntington has joined a growing list of communities restricting gas-powered blowers. No more using them here on weekends and holidays. You can blow. We're just saying, let's start to migrate to battery-powered blowers. Okay, so in that community, it was just a weekend ban. In Oak Bay, I believe it's a total ban they're looking at. Let's discuss now with my guest, Oak Bay City Councilor Tara Ney. And I'm very pleased to welcome Tara to the show. Hi, Tara. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you, Michael. Nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, you bet. It's our pleasure here. So let me ask you about how this will work in Oak Bay. Like you heard in that report that some communities were looking at a leaf blower ban just on the weekends. This would be a total ban in Oak Bay. You couldn't use them at any time, correct? Well, that's correct. Uh, we've gone the, with the whole hog here. Um, you know, it, it, this has been a long time coming, Michael. We started this 10 years ago. It was turned down. Um, by the council as a recommendation from the environmental committee. I put another motion back in 2016, but it was really the pandemic that prompted this once again, back in, I think the summer of 2020, we put a a motion forward to um, uh, phase these out with both the corporation of Oak Bay, as well as residents and the council at that point decided they would start with the corporation and they have made significant uh, inroads 
and and so they're showing leadership that this these transitions now can be done with the technology available. And so then just more recently, uh, we brought the motion forward to see um, if we could get this passed for uh, a phase out ban of the gas powered leaf blower with um, all residents in the right. community. And this would be a ban on all gas-powered landscaping equipment, not just leaf blowers, but it would also be gas-powered lawnmowers and weed whackers and chainsaws, correct? That, that is correct. Of course, it's the leaf blower one that really in, in, incites people to, 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 to move this forward. And I think it's really the noise. And as it said in your clip, um, during the pandemic, this issue of the noise, you know, with the, with the leaf blower and other garden equipment, but particularly the leaf blowers, um, uh, has, has amplified uh, the issue. And I, the reports I get, people working from home, um, during the pandemic, they couldn't even do their their, their Zoom calls. They uh, be, because of the interference of the noise. So um, it really has um, interfered with the livability of people in in the community. Right. Will this apply to homeowners, but also professional landscape companies? Like a lot of people will hire a company to come and mow their lawn you know, do a cleanup in their lawn and their yard in the fall, will they be required? Will contractors be required to, to not use a gas powered equipment now? Yes. Yes. Okay. And, and quite frankly, um, there, we have many companies in the community and the region who are showing leadership in, in this area. I, I was speaking with one um, garden company and his business as he's made the transition to electrified garden equipment has increased fivefold. He has no room for um, more clients. And he says uh, that it's the demand from the consumer that has supported his um, transition to the garden equipment. Homeowners are looking for garden equipment uh, companies to, to do the work so that they don't have the smell uh, and and the noise that bothers them and their neighbors. So the business case can be made now. We, uh, as I say, there's there's numerous business that have done that, made the transition, and even um, uh, uh, um, stores that are selling electric equipment say that um, uh, the, the 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 electric uh, garden equipment is outselling gas powered uh, garden equipment by three to one. So okay. people, the trend is there. Okay, despite that, though, we also hear from some landscape companies who are concerned about this ban. I was looking at the comments from Kevin Bunting from Island Horticultural Services, quoted in the local paper, The Times Colonist this week, who said he's been in the landscaping business for 30 years. And if he had to do a complete switchover of all his equipment from gas-powered, he's got gas-powered gear now, if he had to go electric, it would cost him more than $20,000. And he's also worried about the battery life of the equipment and whether it can stand up to a full day of working in all kinds of different parts of the city. And he says there may be some landscape companies just might stay away from Oak Bay now. What do you think of that? 
Well, I, I, you know, one is our bylaw uh, has, we've got a phase in over three years. And so I think we, we, we probably, the technology will advance. So, um, and the prices will come down over that three year period. Uh, we've also introduced um, a, a rebate. Uh, that's the proposal and the request from council when the staff brings the report back. So we're looking to support people who have perhaps, you know, um, uh, to incentivize people to make the transition. But specifically with garden equipment companies, um, one garden equipment company presented quite a, a business case and did the whole analysis that included uh, the cost of fuel, which we know is uh, increasing, yeah. as well as the cost of maintenance. And over a period, um, said over a few year period, that that in itself cost between 20 and 22,000 K. So I think you really have to get um, the devil's in the detail and do make the business case. And I, I guess the proof is in the pudding because there's numerous uh, landscaping companies who have made the transition and are, 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 are expanding their businesses, not right. um, being put out of business. Right. Speaking to Oak Bay City Councilor Tara Ney about the ban on gas-powered leaf blowers, lawnmowers, trimmers in Oak Bay... Tara, what has been the reaction from from your constituents to this move by city council? Are you getting a lot of support, getting any complaints? What are you hearing? Well, if you read the Facebook, you get the mixed reactions. But, I, you know, for the most part, I'm, I'm hearing people, people that I thought would be more resistant. They're saying, uh, you know, it's inevitable. We're going to need to make the transition anyways. Uh, so we may as well do it earlier uh, rather than than later and uh, there are a lot of people are just saying thank god I know one uh, community person who thought this would actually never go through in Oak Bay and just yesterday he phoned me I can't believe it we just put our house up for sale and bought a new house to try to get away from this area of the community that um, where the leaf blowers are on incessantly during the certain times of the year. So they, they couldn't take it anymore and they moved out of the community to wow. a, a, a quieter place. So I, I'm getting a lot of positive uh, feedback and I, my sense is people um, are, are, are ready to make this transition. Thank you very much for coming on today to talk about it. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Michael. All right, here we go now with the police tr uh, crackdown on speeding. Traffic police are out to get you right now. If you are behind the wheel of your vehicle right now, maybe thinking of putting your foot down, driving over the speed limit, be careful. Local police stepping up speed enforcement. Have a listen to this warning now from traffic police. Time savers, busy bees, running late rushers, occasional racers, and impatient light chasers. We see you. More tools, more speed checks, more chances to catch you in the act. Brought to you by your local police. Okay, so if you get a speeding ticket, a distracted driving ticket, any type of traffic ticket, have you ever tried to fight the power and beat the rap? You can win in traffic court. But, now here's a question. How long should you expect to wait before you get your day in court? Is there a limit 
on how long you will receive your speedy trial. Let's discuss all this now with my guest, Paul Doroshenko, Acumen Law. He specializes in traffic law, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Paul, thank you very much for coming on. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Nice to talk to you. Okay, first of all, let's start with this uh, police crackdown on speeding. I mean, as the weather turns nicer, this is kind of an annual exercise by local police. They're out to get you. What's the typical way people get caught speeding? Is it on a radar? Oh, laser and radar are the main ways, mostly mostly laser. So it's police officers parked at the roadside, basically. Uh, they've got a, a speed trap set up, um, and it's easy to pick them off with laser. Uh, that's probably the easiest way to identify the actual person, even picking them out of traffic, right? Yeah, and if you get caught on a laser speeding, are you basically caught red-handed? You've got no hope of beating that ticket? Oh, no, there's lots of hope to succeed oh. with the ticket. But most of the time it comes up with, you know, it's something that takes place in court. So you go to court and the police officer's testifying and there's something that can shake the uh, the evidence. Uh, you know, they have to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt, right? That's the yeah. whole thing in traffic court. It's not on a balance of probabilities. The, the onus is on the police officer, if you dispute your ticket, to prove that case uh, in court beyond a reasonable doubt. That's a high standard. Right. So, and with you know, the, as, with, as a defense lawyer, I'm in there to try and figure out where there's a doubt and identify. Right. And, and would the police officer typically be called upon to, to show that the laser device or the radar device is accurate and working properly? Properly functioning, but it's not just the uh, it's not just the issue of the device, right? They have to have the surrounding circumstances also support it uh, and demonstrate, be able to explain. Uh, the pre-tests and the post-tests that they are supposed to conduct with that device. Remember, it's a measurement tool, right? Uh, and if the measurement tool is out for some reason, then everything's thrown out. But, you know, also if you, if you go to measure something and you think, well, you know, that's a, a seven-foot door jam and you get your tape measure out and it says five feet, you know that there's a problem. So police officers are also supposed to make a speed estimate uh, at the same time and compare it against their reading on their device. Okay, so let's say you get a ticket, you believe it's a bum rap, you are going to fight that ticket, whether it's speeding ticket, distracted driving, very common one. I know you're involved in a lot of those cases. We have been talking, Paul, the last couple of days about how quickly can you expect the wheels of justice to grind here? Like, is, is there a limit on how quickly you're, you're supposed to be in front of a judge and get your day in court? Well, this has been a discussion that's gone on since uh, 2016 when the uh, uh, case of Jordan came out from the Supreme Court of Canada. That was a case that started in B.C., uh, and the Supreme Court of Canada looked at delay. Uh, and that was, that was a criminal case, right? So it's a little bit different circumstances. But they looked at delay in the justice system. You know, the Charter of Rights had been, uh, you know, we'd had it for three and a half decades at that point. And the court kept rendering these decisions, you know, uh, directing stays, giving charter remedies for people because they didn't get their trial uh, within a reasonable period of time. Uh, and so people have wondered since the Jordan decision came out, which set a limit for provincial court cases at 18 months, right? Your, your, your matter basically should be on. You should have a trial. It should basically be resolved within 18 months. Uh, and people wondered, does that apply to traffic court? Should it apply mm. to traffic court? Should it be a shorter period of time? You know, traffic court is, uh, is not criminal. It's not as complex. Uh, they don't take as long. So why should you have an 18-month limit? Shouldn't you get it on soon? Uh, and right. this has been a question that we've, we've talked about and we've wondered about it. And my, you know, my colleague was preparing to run the argument saying that there should be a shorter ceiling, a shorter period of time, that it should be maybe a year or something to get it on traffic court. 
Now, most of the time in traffic court in BC, you have your trial within six to nine months. That's almost all of the courthouses. You file your ticket in dispute, you're going to have your trial between six to nine months. But there's this case that came out recently where this person had their trial set 95 days after uh, she received an electronic device ticket, and she went to argue that that was too long. <laughs> 95 days uh, was oh. too long to have her trial on. And so this was adjudicated, and the fascinating thing is the way the facts played out in it. I don't know if you had a chance to read it. I did look at it briefly, yes. So it's, uh, her name is Sim, Simanjit Sangha, and yeah. what happened was she got her cell phone ticket, she filed it in dispute, 95 days later, like remarkably quickly, she gets a trial date. On the trial date, her lawyer shows up, says that he was hired the day before, uh, and that he wants to make an argument that this matter has taken too long, that she hasn't, she's not going to get a trial within a reasonable period of time, even though only 95 days have passed. Mm. So the judicial justice in traffic court is looking at it going, well, you know, I can't make that decision. That's got to go to a provincial court judge, but... You know, what are you talking about, 95 days? But okay, you know, you're entitled to make your argument. So they send uh, uh, Miss Sanga away and say, go file the documents, schedule the thing for a hearing, go conduct your hearing, saying that 95 days is too long to wait for a trial date. Mm -hmm. This thing ends up dragged out for 17 months from that point. So 17 months from the time of the ticket. Well, she's you know, wants to get this hearing on, but isn't really taking the steps that are necessary to do it. Sometimes she's got a lawyer. Sometimes she doesn't have a lawyer. She doesn't file the right documents. And she gets on in front of a provincial court judge who looks at it and says, wow, this took a long time to get to this point. I'm, you know, I can see that some of it was confusing for, for Ms. Sanga. Uh, and uh, as a consequence, I'm going to say that there's a new presumptive ceiling. I'm going to say that it should be 14 months for a traffic ticket to get to court on the outside. And gives her the stay. So, I mean, you got to remember the original trial date was 95 days afterwards. Well, BC Supreme Court rendered a decision in this case. It was appealed, of course, by the Crown. And they looked at it and said, well, hang on a second. Hang on a second. Uh, Should we really be creating a, a different standard for, um, for traffic court than, than what we would have in criminal court? Should we be creating some different standard? And besides, look at this, look at what actually took place here. So this decision came out, BC Supreme Court decision. The decision was uh, just released last week, but it's from March 21st. And uh, Madam Justice Norell, and she basically came to the conclusion that creating multiple different standards, not having a uniform standard for the ceiling, for the time to get to court, uh, we, we just can't have that because it makes no sense in our justice system to have that. And besides, if you look at what took place here, that trial was originally supposed to take place 95 days after the offense. And everything else was essentially a delay created by the defense in order to make the argument for delay. So the Crown, why so the Crown is, won that? Is, yeah, so, the Crown won, so the Crown won that appeal then? Well, they won that appeal. And so yeah. now basically the rule is fixed. Uh, it's 18 months. And so, you know, one of the number one questions I get asked by people when they phone me is, well, can't I adjourn this? And, uh, you know, the answer, of course, is, you know, if there's a legitimate reason to adjourn it, then you can adjourn it. But you can't just adjourn it because you want to adjourn it, right? Or you can't adjourn it to try and generate a delay. Uh, but this is pretty clear now at this point. Uh, it's maybe unfortunate because maybe it should have been a shorter period of time. So you know, now maybe it should have been. 
So now it's 18 months. Is you're expected to have your trial within 18 months on a tra- in traffic court? Is that correct? And that's that's basically the outside. Yeah. Now you know if you if it ends up delayed further than that, and it's delayed because of uh, the police officer's not available or the court's not available or they run out of time, you know you might be able to argue in certain circumstances that a shorter period of time would apply. But the general ceiling, uh, you know, so long as the delay isn't delay occasioned by you jerking the court around or, you know, uh, deliberately delaying it, yeah. uh, it's 18 months. And if it's beyond 18 months, you know, apply to get it, uh, apply to get it thrown out. All right. Welcome back to the show as we continue talking traffic law in British Columbia, how to fight a traffic ticket with my guest, Paul Doroshenko, Acumen Law, 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898, toll free on your cell. Barry and Langley. Hi, Barry. Go ahead. Hi, good morning. I'm listening to your comments today on on police giving out tickets. I was uh, going westbound on Highway 1. I was in the right-hand lane, and a uh, one-ton pickup came onto, or one-ton cube van came onto the highway, and so I moved over one lane, and he kept coming over, so I moved over another lane, and I'm checking my mirrors to make sure I have room, and this guy just forced me all the way into the HOV lane, and, of course, Johnny Law is like, you know, five cars behind me, sees what happens, pulls me over, and I said to him, I said, didn't you see what happened? He says, yeah, I saw what happened, but you're still in the HOV lane. Gave me my ticket. I went to court, and I asked the cop in court, I says, now explain to the judge why I was in the HOV lane. He says, you were traveling in it. I says, wasn't that one-ton cube van pushing me all the way over? He says, no. So they lie. Oh. Oh. They lie just so they can get their money. Okay, so what and happened? I, did, did you? I guess you didn't beat the ticket then, huh? No, I never beat okay. the ticket, but there you go. They see what happens on the road. And they give you a ticket, even though you're avoiding an accident and, and, and mayhem on the road. And as I said to the judge, I said, Your Honor, thank you very much. I'm going to get a court uh, um, record of this. And the next time this happens, I'm going to let them hit me, and I'll cause chaos. And that way I won't get a ticket going in uh, avoiding accidents. You okay. know, it's just a, a bunch of BS. Okay, Barry, thank you for sharing that story. Paul, what do you think of that? Well, I mean, Barry had a necessity defense, right? Uh, there could have been yeah. an argument that was made, but it, the, the issue is setting it up correctly, getting that evidence out of the police officer. Uh, it's not likely the police officer is necessarily going to remember or have seen it uh, from the perspective that Barry saw it. Barry needed to uh, to get that evidence out during his uh, during his direct examination, basically him taking the witness stand, getting that evidence out. He might have succeeded. What what happens, though, if it's your word against a police officer's word? Like if you say the reason I was in that HOV lane was a truck forced me in there. It was like you said, I was it was a safety move I had to make. But the police officer disagrees with you. The judge is going to side with the police officer. Oh, no, no, not necessarily. Not necessarily. I remember. Remember, this is a reasonable doubt standard. And if you're credible. Uh, and your evidence is reliable, then, you know, the and, and, and the police officer's evidence may be called into question in that case. The police officer has one perspective, you have a, another perspective. You know, it doesn't mean that you're going to be, that the police officer's evidence is going to be preferred. Okay, keep phoning me, 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898, toll free on your cell. Anthony on the line in Burnaby. Hi, Anthony, go ahead. Hey, how's it going? Good, good, go ahead. Um, yeah, so I was just wondering, a friend of mine, he actually one time hired a lawyer to fight his traffic ticket, which averages, depending on which company you go to, one to $2,000. Yeah. 
Now, let's say you get a $500 ticket for distracted driving or even a $100 ticket for well, one fifty for the um, speeding. And let's say you win the ticket. I mean, you're still out the $1,000. Is there a way that if you do actually win the ticket with your lawyer, that you instead of being, because most people will just pay the $130 because it's way cheaper than hiring a lawyer. But if you do hire a lawyer and are successful at beating the ticket, could you actually go and sue for the money that you're out for paying the <laughs> lawyer or the lawyer fees? <laughs> okay, Paul. There's expenses of living in this uh, in the world, right? And one of the expenses you've got is if you intend to step up and defend yourself on these things, you're going to pay a lawyer for it. Uh, we sort of become accustomed to uh, to uh, conceiving of things being paid for us because we're accustomed to health care. Um, you know, yes, there are circumstances if you could show malice on behalf of the police, uh, you might be able to succeed in litigation. But I would never encourage somebody to do that. You could lose. If the police officer yeah. comes along and can prove on a balance of probabilities that they did everything correctly, which is a lower standard, you lose, and then you have to pay costs to court, which okay, is so paying to, for the speak, other side. Speaking of costs, like if you fight a traffic ticket and you win in court, the judge is not going to award you costs and say, well, now, this, now the Crown has to pay your, the cost of your lawyer, right? That doesn't happen. I cannot think of a circumstance no. in 22 years of doing this where I think I could have argued for costs. Yeah, uh, okay. you know, most of the time the police are coming along and and they are doing their best to do their job, and most of them are quite skilled. Uh, and you know, as a result of something that was not right, uh, okay. and usually my client had an idea of it, you know, the person's acquitted. Great. Blake doesn't mean that the police officers in you know showing malice. Blake in Vancouver, you're running out of time. Blake, you got thirty seconds oh, here. Sunday night, I'm coming around Rogers Arena, going home. And I stopped. There was um, Ma and Pa and about five little baby ducks going across there. And the cop came right behind me and, get, and stopped me. And he said, what are you doing? And I said, letting the ducks go by. He said, you're holding up traffic. And he gave me a ticket. Oh, no. Come on. So I really? asked him, I, I said, what would you suggest I do? Run over them? He said, <laughs> and he was, well... Like the officer just said, some are very good policemen, but some don't use discretion. Okay, does he have a defense, Paul? 30 seconds. Uh, no, actually. Um, oh, we can no. talk about that on another day. you got to run over the ducks. No, he's, he's there's no duck, yeah, there's no that, duck there's defense, sir? A woman who was convicted of dangerous driving causing death because she stopped for ducks in Quebec. All right, let's get an update now on a story we told you about on some earlier shows, the cooling off period for real estate sales. So here's the deal with this now. The B.C. government saying that home buyers deserve a reasonable opportunity to back out of a deal and an agreement to purchase a home. So this has now been described as a consumer protection measure. Uh, the government concerned that too many buyers were getting in over their heads, buying a property sight unseen, maybe without an appraisal, maybe without a home inspection. We've heard some horror stories in British Columbia of people who've bought homes that turn out to be full of mold. So the government was saying, look, you need a reasonable period to get out of the deal even after you've signed the papers to buy the home. So we're getting some of the details now filled in on this bill, which has passed the B.C. legislature, the cooling off period. 
in real estate. Let's discuss it with my guest, Kathy Lian. Kathy is a mortgage finance and investment professional, and I'm very pleased to welcome her. Kathy, thank you very much for coming on today. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. You bet. Thanks for doing it. So let's talk about this uh, cooling off period. So how long is the cooling off period? How long do you have now to back out of a deal? So originally, the BC government introduced a, a legislation that will allow the buyer to back out of the home purchase without the penalty. Uh, it was originally recommended at seven-day cooling off period, um, which is essentially taking away subject free offers. Now, last week, BCFSA, which is the regulators for the real estate industry, uh, they came back with a recommendation for three days cooling off period with a modest termination fee. Right. Okay. So three days, three days to back out of the deal. And if you do decide to back out within that three day period, you'd have to pay like a, a some sort of a fee, right? Like a cancellation fee. How much is that fee? Yeah. So they're recommending uh, right now at 0.1 to 0.5% uh, interest percent on a uh, the purchase price, which is if you, you know, for a million dollar purchase price, you're probably looking at about a thousand to five thousand uh, dollars, which is a fee. Right. Yeah. Like zero. Yeah. I'm looking at my calculator right now. So point, <laughs> zero point zero point five percent of a million. That would be five thousand dollars. So that's potentially what you're talking about. So you'd be allowed to back out of the deal within three days, but it would cost you five thousand bucks potentially. Yes. That's, yeah. that's correct. Now, I just want to make a note that um, this is just a recommendation from the BCSSA. The government hasn't really given any details and um, when it will start, um, only that they're going to consult with the real estate industry. And this is that one recommendation that came back. Right, right. What do you think of this? Because the biggest, I think, concern that people have in this market is the affordability crisis. It's so expensive it, yeah. to buy a home. I don't think this will do much to reduce prices, will it? Yeah, you know what, like, I, I personally have mixed feelings on this. Um, on the one hand, I do think it's helpful for buyers, uh, especially first-time home buyers who I work many work really closely with. They don't have large down payments, and they're not willing to go into subject-free offers. And, you know, they're competing against people who are making large down payments or potentially cash offers. Um, also, it does give buyers, like you said, some time to do their due diligence, they're, you know, getting their financing in place. They're getting their home inspection. They're requesting the strata documents. Um, so, yeah, I do think it's helpful for buyers. At the same time, it's, you know, as you mentioned, it doesn't help with the affordability crisis here in BC. Um, the buyers are going to be competing with this mandatory cooling off period. And even more emphasis is going to be placed on prices, which means prices can potentially increase. Yeah, I mean, I've um, even heard the argument that this could actually, in some ways, backfire or have the opposite effect yeah, that, they, yeah, that the government like hopes. In, exactly. Some like a lot of people are fearing some unintended consequences. Like they're thinking, you know, some buyers might just make an offer, they might tie up a property, and they're just going to walk away with any you know kind of repercussions. So, I think like with the BCFSA introducing the modest kind of termination fee, I think that's probably going to be a little bit more useful than what the original. Um, regulation that the government, you know, with no penalty at all. Yeah, right. Because if there was no penalty at all, which was part of the original idea, I mean, you could have people just putting in multiple offers and multiple I, properties yeah, if, if they know exactly. they could walk away. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. It just it's it's just not really fair for sellers for sure. 
Right. Okay. So now there would be, you'd have three days to back out of it, potentially pay a modest, modest fee. Do you think like for most people who are buying a property, I guess this would be some protection, especially if you haven't done a a professional appraisal of the property or a home inspection. Like do a lot of sales go through without a, without a home inspection? You know what? I The statistics is a little alarming. So in BC here, they're saying that almost 70% of um, offers are subject free. So I, I think the government has the right intention. They are, you know, they're hoping to protect buyers to, to have, you know, so that you're not competing against a lot of people who are going subject free. So now everyone's kind of in the same playing field, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Kathy, speaking to Kathy, Leanne is a mortgage and finance and investment professional. Um, we anticipate interest rates going up yes. again in the future. Kathy, what are you looking for there in a potential, another potential rate hike? Yeah, so actually this morning, the Bank of Canada just increased their benchmark rate by 50 basis points to 1.5 um, just to you know combat our high inflation rates. Um, they're also inc- uh, hinting at more rate increases coming. Um, the current prime rate right now is going to be increasing to 3.7, which means all the variable rate mortgage holders and um, is, you know their, their rates are going up and depending on your bank, your monthly payment could be increasing. Yeah, yeah. Here we go with these increased in- interest rates for sure. What kind of impact do you think that could have on this market? You know what they they've done it twice already. So once in March, once in April, and then to, as of today. So it's definitely we've seen a slowdown in the BC real estate market. Um, I think it's it's dropped as much as thirty five percent in April, yeah. and you know buyers are are waiting on the sidelines. They're 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 kind of you know doing a wait and see approach to see if prices will be dropping. Um, a lot of my realtor contacts are saying they're seeing a lot less showings, a lot, a lot less offers, especially the high-priced uh, single-family homes. Okay, well, that's very interesting. Yeah, the number of sales is certainly down, but the prices the prices aren't down as much, right? The prices are stickier. They they they're not as they don't fall as much as the sales yeah, have gone down. Yeah, I I I think prices will slowly adjust. Um, as of now, they haven't. It's it's very minimal right now. Yeah. Okay. Kathy, thanks for coming on with your thoughts on it today. Yep, absolutely. Thank you for having me.